welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller, and this is our new weekly format. That's right, you are now getting episodes of Relevant History, not every other week, but once a week. Shorter episodes, more of them. We will see how this goes. Now, today's episode is more or less a sequel to our last three episodes on the Crusades. We've talked about the First Crusade in Deus Vault. We talked about the Second Crusade in An Ignominious Failure. And we talked about the aftermath of the Second Crusade in The Horns of Hati. In the last episode, where we talked about the fall of Jerusalem after the defeat of most of the Crusader armies. Well, while we have been bogged down in the Crusades, the rest of the world has not been standing still. And today, we're going to talk about some related events that are going on up in Europe at the time. But... As with everything else in this time period around the Mediterranean, the events we're going to talk about end up being tied to the Crusades and being sucked into the Crusades. What do I mean by that? Well, to use an example that is close to today's story, in Western society, or at least in English-speaking countries, most of us grew up hearing stories of Robin Hood and his band of merry men. Right, He lives out in the woods, he robs from the rich, gives to the poor, he's a talented archer, he's in love with Maid Marian, right? You know the whole story and mythology there. Well, Robin Hood himself is a legend, right? We know this. Uh, there are several theories, if you will, for his origin. There are some rebel lords in England around this time with similar names. There are some outlaws with similar names, and well, that in itself shouldn't be surprising because Robin is just a diminutive word for Robert, uh, which is a common English name, and the surname Hood was also common at the time. Uh, these names were so common that some historians think Robin Hood may even have been just a generic term for a highway bandit, which then turned into a legend, right? Think like how G.I. Joe was just a term for you know, any old random soldier, and now we have you know a whole series of comics and toys and movies and stuff about G.I. Joe, right? Karen is another generic term that is now, you know, maybe becoming legendary. But while Robin Hood himself is a legend, the England in which he is set was a very real place. There is a place called Nottinghamshire with a Sherwood forest and a city of Nottingham, which at the time would have had a sheriff. Uh, in, in the background, even, of the story, right, in the fictional story of Robin Hood, we know that the rightful king of England, King Richard, is on a crusade. 
But what's often less apparent in the English story we hear is that the England of the Robin Hood legend is a very different one than the England we know today. You see, it's part of an empire, and I don't mean the British Empire on which the sun never sets, and I don't mean the ancient Roman Empire either. I mean a very short-lived empire from the Middle Ages called the Angevin Empire. The Angevin Empire is the type of creation that could only really exist in the Middle Ages. And only in certain places like Europe or maybe Japan where you had a feudal system could you really have a political entity like this. See, the Angevin Empire is a bizarre union of England, not Great Britain. Scotland was a different country at the time, but England and... uh, parts of modern-day France, about half the country, roughly. And all of this land was unified by a man named Henry II. And, as we will see, Henry did this by a combination not just of warfare, but of brilliant diplomacy and even marriage. Now, in an earlier episode, we said that the English did not participate in the Second Crusade because there was a civil war going on. And, uh, as it turns out, one of the claimants to the throne in that war is indeed young Henry II, who is a distant claimant to the throne and who ends up settling for ruling large parts of France at first, if you want to call that settling. Henry is a nobleman by birth, obviously, being in the line of succession for the English crown, and he is fond of battle. Uh, He is so fond of it, in fact, that he is famously bow-legged from spending so much time on horseback out in the field, if not actually fighting, then training in the off-season, so to speak. Uh, And... Henry is originally a very uh, minor ruler. He has a little bit of land, but he manages to obtain rule over the much larger territory of Normandy in northwestern France by swearing fealty to French King Louis VII. The region had been in dispute between the kings of France and England, And by stepping in as someone who is in line to the English throne and also then swearing fealty to the French king, Henry is able to defuse any potential conflict. So uh, both the French King Louis and the English King Stephen are okay with this arrangement. And lo and behold, now Henry rules over Normandy a fairly large region over which he is the duke. And uh, shortly thereafter, Henry makes another major move in his career. 
On May 18th, 1152, this is now a few years after the Second Crusade, uh, he marries Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor is the Duchess of Aquitaine, which is a fairly large, fairly prosperous area in southwestern France, so sort of adjacent to Henry's territory. And her previous husband is someone we had talked about. As a matter of fact, we talked about their relationship when we talked about the Second Crusade. He is none other than Louis VII, King of France, who Henry has just sworn fealty to. And, in fact, Louis and Eleanor had just obtained an annulment from the Pope like eight weeks before she marries Henry. Louis had done this because she had failed to produce a male heir. This was not the stated reason for the annulment. The stated reason was that they were fourth cousins, but well, that didn't stop Eleanor from marrying Henry, who was her third cousin. These European nobles at the time were generally related in some respect, and given the fact that the marriage took place only eight weeks after Eleanor's annulment from Louis, it does seem that uh, she and Henry had been planning this out in the background, at least to some extent. Now, Eleanor is quite the catch for Henry. Uh, at 32 years old, she's still young enough to have children, which is essential if you're going to be a queen in these times. You have to be able to have an heir, right? And she's quite experienced at politics. Uh, now, she is a veteran of the Second Crusade. We talked a little bit in the past about her and Louis' time in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, sometimes she's been inaccurately portrayed by pop historians as this sort of warrior queen. Uh, there are no contemporary records from that time uh, of her actually leading troops at the front or anything like that. But she is highly educated and she is involved in a lot of the negotiations in the political side of the warfare and she's a very experienced diplomat and... In addition to all of that, she's also an expert on naval organization. And just as important as all of this is the fact, again, that she is the Duchess of Aquitaine, this fairly large territory. And with his marriage to Eleanor, Henry has not just obtained a formidable wife, but he also now controls more French land than the king of France. Now, this is unacceptable to Louis VII for two reasons. One, all of a sudden he's feeling a little bit threatened because now he's got this guy, Henry, who's supposed to be, you know, the Duke of Normandy, his vassal, but now actually has more land and resources and troops than the king himself. And just as importantly... In the feudal tradition, after an annulment like this, especially when the marriage had produced children, as it had, Eleanor and Louis had had a couple of daughters, it was considered inappropriate for the woman to get remarried. 
Uh, right. Generally, she would either sort of retire or go into a nunnery. If she did get remarried to another nobleman, it could mess up lines of succession uh, by marrying Henry, for instance. Eleanor basically cut her daughters off from anything that they might have inherited from Louis. It was a complicated situation, but uh, point being for her to leave Louis uh, at his wishes or not and then get married to Henry, particularly after such a short period of time, was just an insult. So Louis goes and forms a coalition with the English king Stephen to make war against Henry and to seize his territory. Right, so we have the king of France and the king of England making war on a vassal to the king of France who is also kind of sort of in line for the English throne. And Henry manages to beat both of his rivals. First off, King Stephen of England has a couple of castles in Aquitaine, and, well, they're lightly manned, and Henry is able to easily capture one of them, like, right at the beginning of the war, uh, and use that as a bargaining chip. And you know, while Stephen is going to take a little time to get his armies over to France... Uh, Louis, who has an army there ready to smash into Normandy, uh, he gets sick. And in these days of you know, kings and other leaders leading from the front, when Louis gets sick, uh, he's forced to withdraw, and that means his army is forced to withdraw. And now with Louis off the field, there is no threat against Henry, on the European continent. And Henry strikes while the iron is hot, or in this case, perhaps more literally, when it's cold. See, he invades England early in 1153, and he sails through a harsh winter storm, braving possible shipwreck, to catch Stephen's forces unawares on the landing. Now, we should point out that this does not count as a foreign invasion. After all, Henry and Stephen are both Norman nobles fighting in a dynastic civil war. And uh, either way, it doesn't really matter because before there are any major battles, a peace is brokered. And it is brokered by a famous monk of the time, a man named Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, and this is the same Bernard, by the way, who had preached the Second Crusade a couple of episodes ago. He manages to get Henry and Stephen to make peace, and the arrangement they work out is that Henry swears fealty to Stephen. Honestly, not quite sure how this works, because he's also sworn fealty to Louis. But anyway, Henry swears fealty to Stephen, and in return, Stephen makes Henry his heir as the King of England. And as it happened, Stephen does not live as long as anybody expects. He dies in his middle years on October 25th, 1154, a little bit over a year later. And this leaves Henry as King of England and also Duke of Normandy, Duke of Anjou, and Duke of Aquitaine. That's a whole bunch of titles, and that's a whole lot of land. And this is the territory, more or less, 
that would later be called the Angevin Empire. But as you can see from the way it was sort of cobbled together, right, this is not a traditional empire in the sense of being a sort of unified state, right? It was a set of different political entities ruled by a single ruler. Right? So there was no Angevin imperial treasury, for instance. Right? There was an English treasury, there was a Norman treasury, there was a treasury of Aquitaine, and all of these were in service of Henry, who is known, by the way, as King Henry II of England, but Duke Henry, if you're in one of these other places. Anyway, they all served the same person. But what this does is it makes the Angevin Empire inherently unstable. Henry rules each of these lands, at least in part because of the consent of the local rulers. There are various noblemen and ladies in these countries who have influence and in medieval society, it didn't matter if you were you know, supposedly on paper a very powerful king. If a whole bunch of your nobles got together and decided that you needed to go, uh, you were either going to be removed peaceably or you were going to be looking at a civil war. Right? Kings and queens did not have absolute power. They had to deal with their nobles which means that for Henry, he has to deal with local nobles in each of these places that he rules, and their interests, as you'll see, don't always line up. And, well, if he or, you know, after his death, one of his heirs, if they lose their support, if they lose support from the nobles in, say, England or Aquitaine or Normandy, well, there goes that part of the Angevin Empire. And you can lose your empire really quickly in this way. One thing that you'll notice about Henry is that he makes no real attempt to unify this empire in an administrative sense, right? He himself, it seems, does not think of the Angevin Empire as an empire. We don't see that term used in contemporary writings. The term Angevin Empire is something made up by historians later to call whatever this political entity is, but this is the feudal period. People oftentimes simply think within the sort of political and social framework in which they exist, right? Dukes, counts, and other barons uh, swear fealty to kings with the pope as an arbiter of last resort, and this is how the system works, and maybe it just flat out never occurs to Henry what he's got here. It never occurs to him to create a central tax bureaucracy or a central military administration. None of those things ever happen. And as we well know, the British and the French would go on to have several centuries of rivalry. But 
even in this period, in the 1100s, we will see cultural differences between the French and the English in their different parts of the Angevin Empire. And we do have to ask ourselves, even if Henry had put a central administration in place, could this entity, this thing, could it have survived for long? And finally, just the last thing we should note here is that we do see this power dynamic that's not unusual in medieval times, but unusual today, where the Angevin Empire, the sum total of Henry's lands, well, that is militarily and economically stronger than France, even though Henry is technically King Louis' vassal. Now, during this time period, after he has become King of England and solidified all these realms under his rule, uh, Henry and Eleanor would have eight children. And among these, there would be five sons. Now, one of these would die in childhood at the age of three. Another would die in his 20s, uh, probably from a freak heart attack. But the other three are historically notable. And these are Henry. Uh, these days we'd call him Henry Jr., uh, maybe Hank. And these times they call him Young Henry. Then the second son of note is Richard, and the third is John. And at various points, Henry, Richard, and John would all contend for the English throne. And ultimately, Richard and John would both succeed. But all in good time. See, it seems that while Henry and Eleanor's marriage was productive, uh, it was also turbulent at best. And while they have eight children, Henry also has several illegitimate children. And in the year 1167, the couple formally separates, and Eleanor leaves for Aquitaine. Now, she is sent there from England along with a military governor who is appointed by Henry. But other than his presence, she runs Aquitaine as she sees fit. And when the governor dies a year later in 1168, Henry does not appoint another one, and Eleanor is left effectively in charge of Aquitaine. Now, her armies would continue to serve under Henry, and for the next several years, Eleanor would focus on culture. And there are a lot of legends about this time in Eleanor's life. There are all kinds of myths and poetry about things like courtly love, which is sort of made-up concept in the Middle Ages in Europe where you know, knights and ladies would have uh, affairs that were you know, sanctioned by society and by the court, so to speak, under certain rules. The idea that Eleanor just made up all of these cultural mores is silly. Sometimes these mores didn't exist, and where and when they did exist, they evolved on their own over 
centuries. But anyway, she does spend a lot of time in court taking in a lot of young nobles in Aquitaine and exposing them to culture and etiquette. She is trying to enforce order on young nobles who she tells several of her contemporaries uh, that she sees, you know, these modern young people as very undisciplined and there's going to be trouble in Aquitaine in the future if you know, we don't teach these people some manners. But this time she spends in Aquitaine only lasts about five years. See, in 1173, young Henry, Hank Jr., if you like, uh, he is upset. Uh, he is upset that even though he is heir to all of Henry's titles, uh, Henry has not actually delegated any power to him. So he launches a revolt, and he does so out of a base in Paris, but he does not do so alone. He's joined by some rebel nobles in Normandy and some more rebel nobles in England, and he has an alliance, uh, again, with Louis VII, uh, who invades Normandy, and with the Scottish king, uh, William I, up in the north of England. And again, it looks like Henry II is going to be in a lot of trouble, but young Henry's nobles are all out for their own gain and will not coordinate. So instead of one unified uprising in Normandy and England across much of Henry's realms, there are a series of local uprisings that don't all happen at the same time and don't coordinate their actions, and a lot of them just kind of act like bandits and raid the countryside instead of doing anything useful. And Henry II's allied nobles, who are organized, manage to defeat young Henry's nobles piecemeal. Meanwhile, Louis VII's troops, the ones he sends in to invade Normandy, well, he just hires a bunch of second-rate mercenaries, and they don't actually achieve anything. And the one formidable opponent that Henry II has to deal with, well, a contingent of loyal English nobles captures the Scottish King William in battle which forces the Scots to sue for peace to get their king back. So this whole revolt by young Henry is an utter failure, but Eleanor had backed it. She had supported young Henry, and at the outbreak of the revolt, she had tried to go to Paris to join him. But somewhere along the way, she was arrested by Henry II's agents, and she was transported in secret to England. And there, far from continental allies, from her other family, uh, she would be imprisoned and isolated from her children for the next 16 years. And Henry II is also manipulating other pawns on his chessboard in order to keep his Angevin Empire together. See, in 1169, 
he had engaged his 12-year-old son, Richard, to Louis VII's 8-year-old daughter, Alice. And as part of this arrangement, Alice was sent to England to be Henry's ward. So he's going to kind of raise her, and then when she's old enough, uh, she and Richard are going to get married. Great, right? But as time goes on, uh, Henry, who's like I said, up in England, he will not release her to Richard, who's down in Aquitaine. And by 1177, Alice is 16 years old, Richard is 20 years old, and these days, that's more than old enough for both of them to be married and, you know, working on producing some heirs. And instead... Henry is still holding on to her, and there are rumors that he's actually gotten her pregnant. Things get so bad that the Pope even intervenes, and uh, through one of his bishops, he demands that Henry allow the Alice-Richard marriage to proceed. Well, why is Henry doing all this? I mean, it would be interesting if the stories of an affair and a pregnancy were true, and Even if they are true, though, Henry does not seem like the kind of person who's going to put his kingdom at risk because he wants a little bit of action on the side, right? He's a king. He has other ways to get that. No, Henry is using Alice for two very tangible reasons. One, she has the right... uh, the inherited right to some land in France that Henry wants for himself. He doesn't want to give it to Richard, and he doesn't want it to go to Louis VII, because Louis VII also lays claim to it, right? Louis, the French king, Henry's rival. So he's hanging on to Alice for that reason, so he can kind of keep this land in limbo. And second, by holding Alice captive... He keeps Richard from planning any revolts, right? He's got his son, Richard's fiance captive. He's got a hostage. And it doesn't seem too far-fetched that he's worried about his sons launching rebellions. After all, young Henry has just done right that. Now, ultimately, the Pope settles the matter. He steps in and tells everybody what's what. And uh, Henry gets the disputed land himself. It is no longer Alice's, but he has to release her over to Richard. He has to allow this marriage to proceed, and he can't just keep her locked up in England anymore. And furthermore, both he and King Louis agree to go on crusade together. But Henry still keeps Alice in prison, presumably to keep Richard in line. And in 1180, any potential for a crusade is put on hold by the untimely death of Louis VII and the ascension of his son, Philip II, to the throne. Soon after this, with no crusade forthcoming, young Henry launches another revolt, and this time he does it based out of Aquitaine, out of Richard's territory. And he dies during the revolt in the year 1183, which then the revolt again comes to nothing. But 
During the revolt, the rift between Henry II and Richard deepens. See, Henry is even more suspicious now that this second rebellion has come out of territory that Richard is ostensibly in charge of. With Eleanor in prison, Richard is effectively running Aquitaine at this point, and here Henry comes along and launches a revolt out of there, and so Henry II is not terribly open with Richard about anything he does during the war, and meanwhile, even as Richard is sidelined, he's bringing his youngest son John along on the campaign, and keeping him well appraised of all developments, and it looks as if Henry is now grooming John to be the heir. And after the revolt, with the need to name a new heir, right, with young Henry dead, uh, Henry II announces that upon his death, Richard will become King of England, while John will become Duke of Aquitaine. Now, this is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, right, king is a superior title to duke. No denying that. Certainly rather be a king than a duke, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, that's suitable for the oldest living son. And then the younger son, well, he gets to be a duke. But, see, on the other hand, at this time... England is a relative backwater. She is not the great seafaring power we know from more recent centuries. She is an island off the coast of Europe. And Aquitaine is the largest and wealthiest region of France. So, except for the title, in material terms, John has clearly gotten the better deal. Well... Richard refuses to agree to this, and this kicks off yet another dynastic civil war, and John and the other living brother, Geoffrey, who I said didn't matter and who still doesn't matter, well, they invade Aquitaine, and Richard fights them to a stalemate, and the family briefly reconciles before Geoffrey can finally go off and die and get things back to where I said they were supposed to be. And as a matter of fact, his death, right, that sudden heart attack in his 20s, well, that would upset the balance of power again. See, this brother, Jeffrey, had had some pretty significant territories in his own right, amongst them the territory of Brittany, which is the very far northwestern part of France. It's sort of like a horn that sticks off into the Atlantic. Well, that area had been Geoffrey's by right of him swearing fealty directly to the king of France, right? Now King Philip, the new young king there. And this was not Henry's land, but Henry is now laying claim to that land in his own right, King Philip protests this, and this would lead to a war between Philip and Henry. Now, as often happens in the Middle Ages, we don't see anything here yet beyond a few minor skirmishes. And ultimately, in 1188, Philip would offer peace on the condition that Henry would finally 
release Alice and allow her marriage to Richard to proceed, and that Henry would settle any sort of inheritance confusion once and for all and make Richard his sole heir. Now, Henry would refuse. He'd send a counteroffer that John could be the sole heir instead and marry Princess Alice to boot, but Richard is unable and unwilling to stand aside, and he would demand that Henry make him heir, and he would go himself to Philip of France and swear fealty. And with Richard's loyalty assured, at least for the moment, Philip and Richard go to war against Henry, ignoring pleas from the Pope for more peace conferences. And only 56 years old, Henry is suffering from an ulcer at this time. Doctors at the time call it an ulcer, maybe it was cancer, but he's not long for this world, and he's well aware of that fact. And after losing one battle against Richard and Philip in early 1189, he accepts Richard's demands, makes Richard the sole heir of all his lands, and enjoys a few days of peace before he dies. And with the death of Henry II, Richard, one day to be known as Richard the Lionheart, is now the King of England, and Duke of Normandy, and Duke of Anjou, and Duke of Aquitaine, and Duke of Brittany. Good for him. Richard's first act as king would be to order his mother Eleanor's release from prison. She would go on to live uh, another 15 years, as a matter of fact. She would outlive Richard. Uh, She would die in the year 1204 at the age of 81 or 82. And Richard himself is a controversial king unwilling to be seen as a conniving politician. He instead takes the role of a holy warrior, and after releasing Eleanor of Aquitaine from prison, he immediately vows to fulfill his father's promise to prosecute a crusade. He's tall, he's red-haired, he's well-spoken, he's this sort of fiery leader who's a natural at being a commander. However, he is not necessarily a natural king. He spends most of his time on crusade or fighting rebellious nobles in France, and during nearly ten years as the king of England... He spends less than six months in England itself, and he spends much of his time on crusade. And this makes him very unpopular amongst the English people, at least at this time. And his reputation is further marred by an increase in taxes, which he raises to help pay for his crusade. 
perhaps more fodder for the Robin Hood myth, if you will. Well, this tax was called the Saladin Tithe, and it wasn't just Richard's tax. Actually, King Philip raised the same tax in France, and Richard did not just levy the Saladin Tithe on England either. He also levied it on his French territories, but for some reason it was a little more controversial in England. So you're kind of left wondering to yourself whether Richard is just a bad English king and is still a good Duke of Normandy, Anjou, and Aquitaine at all, or is it a matter of cultural and historical perspective? Regardless, Thanks to this Saladin tithe, this tax, Richard is able to raise an army of about 17,000 men, although in proper English fashion, at least a few thousand were sailors. And Philip raises a smaller army of about 7,000 men. This brings us to where we left off last week, at the dawn of the Third Crusade. See, Richard and Philip picked a good time to fulfill their father's crusading vows. See, we have now caught up with where we were at the end of the last episode. King Guy of Jerusalem led an ill-advised assault against Saladin in the year 1187. He lost his army, and he lost the city of Jerusalem in the process. And this leaves Richard plenty of opportunity. In fact, the Pope has already called a crusade specifically for the purpose of recapturing Jerusalem, and the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, who we talked about a couple episodes ago as a young man, well, now he's an old man, But he's still up for a little fighting, never been known to shy from a battle, and he has led an army through the traditional route down through the Byzantine Empire and across Anatolia, and unfortunately, he has fallen off a horse in 1190 and died. And his army is demoralized and reduced by fever, and while they're able to retake a crusader city of Tyre that had just been taken over by some Turks, they're not able to relieve the city of Jerusalem. This German army that has already gone to try and help has more or less failed. And at the same time as this is going on in the Middle East, well, Richard and Philip's armies are just setting off. Now, they're going to take a faster route than walking all the way across Europe. They're going to come by ship. So uh, they uh, meet up in France and sail first from the Mediterranean coast of France to the island of Sicily. And their thinking is they're going to stop in Sicily and resupply. The Sicilian king, a man named William II, is Richard's brother-in-law. And he had been sending aid to the surviving crusader states already since the fall of Jerusalem. When Richard and Philip land in Sicily, they find that William II has 
pretty much just died. And he has been replaced by the decidedly less friendly Sicilian Norman king, Tancred. And Tancred has taken Joan, uh, William II's widow and Richard's sister. He's taken Joan, this lady, hostage. And in order to get her back and to resupply their troops and their ships, Richard and Philip besiege the city of Messina. And this ties them up for a couple of months. The city doesn't surrender until October 4th, 1190. Tancred is forced to release Joan. The French and English Angevin crusaders are also allowed to resupply and repair their ships in the city of Messina. But in the meantime, enough time has passed that they're not going to be able to sail to the Middle East this year. They're going to have to wait for spring. Winter is a bad time for sailing across the Mediterranean, if you can avoid it. And this is unfortunate because along with sort of breaking their momentum, this time in Sicily also allows for some cracks to form between the Crusaders. See, Richard and Philip by now are personally at each other's throats. Along his way to Sicily, Richard has met and become engaged to a young lady named Berengaria, who is a princess from the kingdom of Navarre. Now, this makes Philip incredibly angry since Richard has now broken his engagement with Alice. Right, that engagement that's been going on since Richard was like 12, that was the cause of so much trouble. Well, Richard broke it, and on top of it, remember also that Alice is Philip's sister. So there's a personal element going on here, too. As Richard and Philip are wintering in Sicily, what is the situation in the Middle East at this point, right? As we left off last time, the Crusaders were basically beaten. I mean, what are Richard and Philip going to walk into when they get there? Well, actually, you might be surprised at how not terrible things are in the kingdom of Jerusalem right now. See, yes, Saladin has taken the city of Jerusalem, and yes, he has captured King Guy, but there are some crusader cities that are still holding out. And one of these is the city of Tyre, ruled by a man named Conrad of Montferrat, who is an Italian noble and he arrived in the city shortly after the Battle of Hattin and the capture of King Guy, and he took command of the situation. Well, in 1188, a year after the Battle of Hattin, Saladin releases King Guy. And he releases him on the condition that he swears not to take up arms against Saladin again, and by all accounts, it seems like he's just really not a threat, and Saladin does not consider him one, and that's why he lets him go. But King Guy promptly breaks this oath and goes to Tyre and demands to be allowed to enter as king of Jerusalem.
Conrad of Montferrat, this Italian guy who came and took over the city, is not going to let him in. He says he's waiting for more crusaders to come and that they're all going to decide together who should be the new king of Jerusalem. Well, Guy has come too far and worked too hard, and he's certainly not going to give up that easily. He brings his wife, Sibylla, the queen of Jerusalem, and she pleads on his behalf. If you recall, Guy is only king of Jerusalem to begin with by virtue of the fact that he married this lady, Sibylla, who's the queen, but even her appeal does not convince Conrad to let them into the city, and it is not until 1189 that the first help from outside of the Middle East starts to arrive. Soldiers from William II, that now-dead king of Sicily, well, they show up, and another group of soldiers shows up with a fleet from the Archbishop of Pisa in Italy, and they join up with King Guy, not with Conrad. And he wants to besiege the coastal city of Acre. He's going to need a base of operations. He can't use Tyre because Conrad won't let him into the city, so he uses Acre. Now, Acre is a port city, sits on a small peninsula about 30 miles south of Tyre on the Mediterranean coast. And this peninsula has two different sides to it, as you might expect by definition. And uh, on the east side of the peninsula, you actually have a port, right? It's sort of a sheltered area of water between the city and the mainland, and then out to the west and to the south, uh, there was a dike wall built to further reinforce the area so you could have calmer waters to bring in ships on all sides of the city. It was a really good spot to have a port. And it was also easy to defend from land because, you know, it was a peninsula, so you only had to put a wall on one side. So on the landward side of the city of Acre, there is a wall running across the thickness of the peninsula, and it's a double wall, and it is reinforced periodically with towers. These are some pretty serious fortifications. But King Guy's going to attack it, and he's going to do it with the Sicilians and the Pisans and a handful of his own survivors from Hattin, and his army consists of about 8,000 infantry and 600 knights, give or take. And they arrive outside the city of Acre on August 28, 1189. There, King Guy sets up his camp on a small mountain nearby. He's learned some lessons from the Battle of Hattin, right? At Hattin, he and his men were caught out in the open without access to water, without fortifications of any kind, without any ways to resupply. This is a completely different situation. For one thing, he is on a tall hilltop. It's easy to throw out some stones and cut down some trees and build some basic fortifications pretty quickly to defend his camp. 
and there's also a spring there. He doesn't have to worry about running out of water. And he's pretty close to the ocean. He can get supply from his allies by sea. But even so, his force is relatively small, and Saladin is out there somewhere and has a much larger army, and if he can't take this city quickly, he's going to be in trouble. So three days after setting up camp nearby the city of Acre, Guy orders a blitz assault. His men have built some ladders, and the entire army just charges up to the walls. They leave a few guys back at the camp as lookouts, but most of them are just going to blitz the walls, run up the ladders, and take the city from the very small garrison before uh, Saladin can resupply anything. And the effort is nearly successful, with several units getting all the way up to the walls of the city. We'll never know if the Crusaders would have been able to take the battlements that day. Because just as they're launching this attack, some cavalry scouts from Saladin's larger army appear on the horizon. And some of the lookouts in Guy's camp see these horsemen. They run out to the army in the field and tell them, hey, there's unknown cavalry out on the horizon coming in to attack us, and Guy does not want to get caught in the open. Again, think about the Battle of Hattin and what happened to him and his men there. They had no water. They had very little food. They had no defenses. They just had to sit there and get pelted with arrows and fruitlessly try and break out, and you think of modern soldiers suffering from PTSD, people who have flashbacks to you know, having to kill somebody else, another human being, or having to see one of their friends or someone they care about die. Well, imagine all the horrors that Guy and some of his veterans had seen at Hattin, and it's hard to imagine that he's not having some flashbacks at this point, and he and his army hightail it back to the protection of their camp. And a few days later, Saladin himself arrives on the scene with a much larger force. And it turns out that those few horsemen on the horizon really were just a few horsemen, few scouts who went back to Saladin and told him what they had seen, and he himself decides that the wise thing to do is to launch a quick assault. Right? From where he's sitting, he's got a small number of crusaders besieging one of his cities. If he doesn't deal with them right now, maybe they'll get some help, and he will have a large number of crusaders besieging one of his cities. So, he attacks the camp on September 15th, but the Crusaders are able to repulse it. Again, this is a pretty good defensive position. For instance, Saladin has been using his usual tactic of using horse archers to harass his enemy, but it hasn't been having much effect because the Crusaders on this hilltop that they've 
been fortifying themselves, at this point they almost might as well be in a fortress. And might as well be under siege. Saladin continues to bide his time now. Now he's thinking, okay, if I can't defeat them by direct assault, I've got the numbers here for now. I will besiege the besiegers. And in the meantime, he tries to help out the people still holding up the defenses in Acre. By night, he sends some infantry sneaking past the Crusaders to get into the city of Acre and relieve the garrison there and shore up their numbers. Well, as Saladin had feared, it does not take long for more help to arrive for Guy's army. No, this is not Richard of England and Philip of France coming. This is still late September of 1189, and this is an army of Franks and Frisians and Danes, people coming from northwest Europe, and their troops join up with Guy, while their ships, apparently 102 of them, they blockade Acre by sea, so now the defenders of Acre are no longer to use their marvelous ports to resupply. And along with this particular fleet, Conrad of Montferrat, that guy who wouldn't let King Guy into the city of Tyre, well, he's no fan of Guy's, but he's not willing to be left out of the action now that well, this whole adventure might actually succeed, and by now, the Crusader army outside of Acre numbers at least 30,000 men-at-arms and approximately 2,000 knights. And Saladin has not been idle either. Uh, he has reinforced with troops from Egypt and Syria and even from as far away as Turkestan, that is, modern-day Turkmenistan, way, way out in Central Asia, we can levy some more of these horse archers. He's bringing in people from all parts of his domain and even further. And his army outside of Acre will ultimately number as many as 60,000. But for now, at least, the numbers are about equal. Now, Saladin tries to break through and relieve the city again on October 4th, 1189. But the Crusaders now have enough men to launch an effective counterattack, so there is a proper battle in the field. The Crusader army lines up with crossbowmen out front, followed by several ranks of infantry, mostly spear-armed, and then followed up at last by the mounted knights. And the plan for the Crusaders was to march forward in a straight line and just keep moving forward and pushing the Muslims back until they were forced to cede the field. But this doesn't quite work. See... The crossbowmen proved to be so devastatingly effective that a large number of Saladin's troops turned tail shortly after the beginning of the battle. Now, this may have been an attempt at one of those Turkish-style feigned retreats, but it turns into a real retreat at a certain point, and the crusaders just keep charging forward. 
And unfortunately for the Crusaders, what happens is that they charge forward so quickly that this nice organized line that they had set up to slowly roll Saladin's men back, it became just a hodgepodge of guys charging forward like in a bad action movie battle sequence. And, well, this disorganized mob of crusaders at this point, they get to the Ayyubid camp and many of the less disciplined men just start looting. This is most of the crossbowmen, this is most of the spearmen, the men-at-arms, and now the only people still pursuing Saladin's troops are the mounted knights and the Knights Templar on foot. And this group is very much outnumbered by Saladin, so you know, as he's retreating, trying to sort of organize his men and turn this route into an organized retreat, Saladin notices that most of the Crusaders have stopped pursuing, and it's just these Templars and these mounted knights that are still coming after him, and if he can rally his men, he can slaughter these guys, so he does. He rides back and forth across his line, rallying his men and telling them, look, look, we've got this group of troops isolated, and... He successfully rallies his troops, and they do countercharge the now outnumbered Templar line. And uh, the Templars and the Mounted Knights are forced back, and while most of the Mounted Knights manage to get away, a larger number of Templars are killed, because most of them are on foot. And this number includes the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, who is killed trying to keep his men safe during the retreat. And now these retreating crusaders run back into Saladin's camp. They encounter their own guys who are still there looting. They tell them, you know, retreat, retreat, run away. And even if they don't say anything, these men-at-arms and crossbowmen see all the knights running in the other direction, and they start running too, well, most of them do. And as they're running back, they find that their own camp, the Crusader camp, well, that is under attack from the garrison at the city of Acre. And after the Crusaders had marched out to meet Saladin, the uh, garrison in the city had noticed that there were only a few defenders left at the camp and attacked it. So now the Crusader army is not just running from Saladin, they're trying to get back to their camp before this garrison army can overrun it and take their nice little impromptu hilltop fort. Well, they get back to their camp in time. Those Crusaders, unlucky enough to notice the retreat or simply too caught up in looting to care, well... They're all killed when Saladin gets back to his camp with his men, and ultimately there are moderate losses on both sides. There are more deaths among the Crusaders, there are more deserters on the Muslim side, but the battle itself is a stalemate. There is no decisive victor, and this leads to a long, drawn-out siege outside of Acre. You've got the crusaders pinned in the field 
between Saladin's army and the city, but themselves surrounding the city uh, by land and sea and being resupplied by sea. Now, there are some attempts by Saladin to break through. At one point, he does successfully get some ships through into the city of Acre to resupply the people there a little bit. Well, meanwhile, the Crusaders themselves also are not idle. They dig in with much better defenses over the winter. They dig a long trench across the peninsula, cutting the city of Acre off. In front of the trench, they build a mound, and then they put a palisade in front of that. That's, you know, a series of spiked logs, basically, that their archers can stand behind if they're attacked. They're turning this into a more and more fortified area, and another thing they do is actually divert a river that provides fresh water to the city. And they build catapults, and they start flinging rocks at the city throughout the day. And one thing Saladin is not able to do over this particular winter is to bring in more troops. This is, after all, the winter and early spring of 1190. This is when Frederick Barbarossa is invading. Remember him, the German leader? Well, Saladin has to deal with him. He's a threat, and any forces that could be reinforcing Acre are instead going north to defeat Frederick Barbarossa. And things are not going well up there. On May 7th of 1190, a 10,000-strong Muslim force is defeated by 2,000 Germans. And the Germans under Frederick Barbarossa follow this up with another victory a few days later against a force of 3,000 troops. But as we mentioned already, Barbarossa would never actually make it all the way down to the kingdom of Jerusalem. On July 10th, while crossing a river, his horse slips on a rock and, wearing heavy armor, the legendary German king is drowned. And at this point, most of his knights return home. I mean, as far as they're concerned, their king is dead, their crusade is over. But a few hundred knights and soldiers continue with Frederick's heir and son, named Young Frederick. And Young Frederick doesn't have enough troops now to engage in any kind of independent operations. Right? So instead, he does the logical thing, and he joins the siege at Acre. Right? And his cousin, Conrad of Montferrat, this Italian guy from Tyre, well, he provides ships to shuttle young Frederick down to the area of operations. And throughout the year 1190, there are a number of attempted crusader assaults on the city. There are several attempted Muslim breakthroughs by sea and land. There are a couple of successful attempts to resupply the city, but the defenders are still in dire straits by now. They've been under siege for a year. You know, they're starting to kill their horses and other beasts of burden because they need them for food more than they need them for work. And let's be honest, takes a lot of 
food to feed those animals. Right, and Saladin, he has enough troops in his empire to defeat the Crusaders, but he does not know yet that Frederick Barbarossa is dead. Word hasn't gotten to him. These are medieval times, and he is still diverting forces north to face the now non-existent German threat. And his anxiety worsens when Duke Leopold of Austria arrives to take command of the siege efforts as the now senior nobleman on the scene. And there's another change on the crusader side as well. Sibylla dies in the summer of 1190. And... With the death of Sibylla, the Queen of Jerusalem, well, there goes Guy's right to the throne. Remember, he was only king because he was married to her. Well, now she's dead. He is no longer king. And the nobles meet, and they agree that Conrad of Montferrat, the Italian guy, well, he can be the king. But they have to make it technically legal, so they arrange for him to marry Princess Isabella, that is, Sibylla's half-sister, who is now technically the heir to the throne of Jerusalem. She's already married, she loves her husband, but her family forces an annulment on her, and she is forced to marry Conrad, who becomes king. So he's making out pretty well. But throughout all of 1190, with all of this politicking and occasional sparring back and forth between both sides, there is no decisive battle at Acre. This is just a long, drawn-out siege. Who is going to last out who? Are the defenders of Acre going to run out of food and water, or are the Crusaders? Or is Saladin who by the winter of 1190-1191 knows about Barbarossa's defeat, who knows he can bring his entire army to bear on the Crusaders, is he going to have the last say in all this? Time will tell. But at this point, you might certainly think that the Crusaders could use some help. Where in the world are King Richard and King Philip? Well, this is the winter that they are spending in Sicily. Right? They stopped there to resupply. They found out that an unfriendly king had taken over and kidnapped Richard's sister. Well, they took care of the unfriendly king and they got their supplies and they saved Richard's sister and... Now they are sitting there waiting for good weather and seeding at each other. Because remember also that Richard had broken off his engagement with Philip's sister. Well, they had officially reconciled, but there was still some tension. And as a result of this tension, Richard and Philip do not leave Sicily at the same time. They decide they're going to sail their armies separately to the kingdom of Jerusalem. So, Philip leaves first on March 30th, 1191. And he arrives outside Acre with his troops on April 20th of 1191. 
But Richard's army would take a little bit of a different course. See, they would leave a few days after Philip. They would depart Messina on April 10th. But that difference of only 10 days would have a major effect on the course of the war and indeed on the course of history because Richard's fleet would get caught in a storm in the eastern Mediterranean. And a ship carrying both his fiancée, Berengaria, and his sister, Joan, runs aground on the island of Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is ruled by a man named Isaac Komnenos. He is a relative of the Byzantine emperor and a rival claimant to the throne. He runs the island of Cyprus as his own kingdom. And he takes Berengaria and Joan hostage, along with a treasure ship that was carrying much of Richard's treasury, which he needs for the war. So now Richard faces a choice. Does he go on to Acre without his sister, his fiancée, and his war chest? No, he does not. He lands his army on Cyprus and demands their immediate release. And when Isaac refuses, Richard goes to war. Can he achieve his objective in time? Can he rescue his fiancée and his sister and his money and get to Acre in time to help? Or will the crusade be over before he even gets there? We will find out in next week's episode. Lionheart, Richard, and Saladin. Hello again. It's Dan, and I'm here to ask for your help. See, we're trying to promote this show and get the word out to as many people as possible, so if you have a minute, please share on your favorite social media. Send a link to the episode or even to our website at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. If this is your first time listening to the show, don't miss a future episode. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google, Spotify, or just about any other service you want to listen to a podcast on. You can find an RSS link as well as a link to all these other services, again, at dantollerpodcast.com. If you want news on the latest episodes or anything that is upcoming in the world of relevant history... You can find us at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter or at Dan Toller on Facebook. Finally, if you've got a few dollars and you'd like to provide some financial support to the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash Dan Toller Podcast. Alternatively, 
You can also support the show at subscribestar.com. You can find us there at Relevant History. And for everything else, including links to interviews and my blog, which may or may not ever get updated, once again, Dan Toller Podcast, Dan T-O-L-E-R Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.